Welcome to the Practice Podcast, Conversations Probing the Nature of Practice. I'm your host, Dave Firon. If there was a neon sign that opened up this conversation, it would be flashing the word resilient, ebullient learner. And then under that would be Catherine Kaplan. This is one of Peter Vale's former students, just like me. And we are having a conversation that will, I think, be worth every second of your listening time. And the neon sign will tell you why. So check me at the end. Tell me if you agree. This is Catherine Kaplan. Well, folks, if you've been following the series, and I hope you have, we are well into 130 episodes. And then I paused, uh, basically through late October through November, to work as diligently as I could uh, on the digital manuscript, which will be Practice as a Way of Being, Peter Vale and David Fearon, the book that Peter brought me into a long while ago. And uh, we've gone through many moments, including the loss of Peter. And in a moment, we'll talk with Catherine Kaplan because she lost her wonderful colleague and husband, Patrick. And Catherine, I know I messed up his last name, Patrick's last name. I called him Patrick Kaplan. So remind me and everyone of Patrick's. Yes. It's Patrick Knowlton. Knowlton, and, yes. 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 And he and I... Um, had a consulting practice called Kaplan, Knowlton and Associates. There you go. So we still have the the website. I can't get rid of it. No, don't, <laughs> don't, don't. don't. Uh, and I apologize for my short memory on every name, including sometimes my own. But uh, <laughs> it, it, folks, it, it, one of the many reasons that I wanted to reach back to Catherine is obviously to say that we, is in the moments that I, met Patrick in that episode, I was enthralled by what a smart, quick and kind and funny gentleman uh, he was. And I want to say, Catherine, I'm awfully sorry that, you know, cancer took him away. I know it's unbelievable. So thank you. So that was we've both of us were fortunate to have marriages lose a loved one it's tough but when you're also not only a business partner but a co-teaching co-consulting co-organization development partner uh that's a lot of collaboration over a lot of time uh but uh that's the first thing i wanted to mention but in and we agreed just before i turned on the recording that there are four people on this uh, on this recording patrick and spirit Yes, <laughs> and he may be interrupting you. I don't know, Catherine or me. And Peter, I hope so. <laughs> yes, yeah, Peter Yale, because you know it, he really had tremendous admiration for you both. And it, he, Catherine, I just sent Catherine the link to episode seventeen, which was unfortunately the last one Peter could um, be available to before he passed. And. And at the end, he was saying, oh, Dave, this is the kind of people where I want to talk to next. And particularly someone who understands women, understands women in organizations and how differently 
they experience their time in organization because of their gender and and the way men in the in what he called the Me Too movement uh, have been treating women. So in that, he, she said, well, but I won't give you her name on on camera. So right afterwards, I kind of <laughs> come on, Peter, come on. You know, Catherine, she was my student. She does amazing work and she would understand exactly what I mean. So yes. let's start with that. Um, and then we can talk. We definitely want to talk about his passion for constant learning with something yes. that you and I've been doing a lot in the last year or so. Um, yes. But when Peter uh, wanted to have this sensitivity to our thoughts on practice to the difference in the experience of women, is there something that quickly comes to mind about what he may have been getting at? Yeah. Um, see, women, I interviewed 32 women. Yes. And that was my dissertation. And 20 years later, I did the follow-up study. Mm -hmm. And the, when I first interviewed them, one of the key differences was that they make a priority of personal development as well as professional development. Mm. And that was something they saw as very different from the men that they were working with. And it, 20 years later, it was probably the saving grace because a lot of them as they aged had the typical problems, uh, parents die, uh, partner dies, uh, terrible um, illnesses, the uh, upturn in the uh, business, you know, so without having a spiritual base and a commitment to personal development, they never could have been as resilient and remarkable as this second generation of women turned out to be. Yeah, I think it, I'm pretty sure that that was really much on Peter's mind when he mentioned reaching out to you because that thought that he had, remember yes. at the end of the episode, I said, Peter, any final thoughts? And that's when he said, well, yeah, I have a final thought. And he said, I think the experience of women in many ways is very different than what we may be thinking as you and I generalize about what it is to be a practitioner and well, a sec oh go on yeah no and i think and what you just said about the commitment to personal development and how that tended not to be anywhere as prominent in men is an interesting really interesting segue as we'll get into talking more about driving one's learning and taking not only responsibility for one's right. learning but understanding the connection between that and resilience and, and growth and all those other factors. And the other thing that was really key is uh, what they called at the time the, the diversity lens. Mm -hmm. They were so sensitive to oppression and how women, this is what Patrick, I mean, uh, Peter, <laughs> they're all here, was talking about in the um, number 17 podcast about the Me Too, which is now very current. But back then, they had a lot of stories that they confided in me about sexual abuse and um, being seen as an object, not taken seriously, and the whole thing about race and how that inter intermingled with gender. And for me, I was a woman 
changing careers. I was at midlife. Mm-hmm. I was in my 40s. I used to be an occupational therapist. And here I was in the world of OD, wanting to see what's different. And from the women's perspective, and it was a wake-up call. I didn't, I had never heard of white privilege. So that got me started on a very long journey. And, you know, I was able to work with that in my work in hospitals. So that was really important. And it continued. What what changed in the 20 years is that um, in the beginning, hardly any, I mean, this is why I started the study. I'm, I'm in a PhD program and none of the articles or books hardly are by women. So, and, and where are the women? Half of the field at that time was women. Now, or uh, 20% more so than men. But what changed is that the articles, they are, they are uh, prolific and they're not focused just on diversity or gender. They're focused on issues of wide interest to the field so that it's not pigeonholed into, you know, well, we're just talking about women's issues. Um, that is a big transition right there, which means that they were actually um, submitted those articles and were accepted and they were beginning to place them in, yes. in, in the places where people could find them. Um, that's a quite a, I think that was a major issue that yes. women weren't getting their papers were not being accepted and not just because they're women, but maybe because they were writing from a woman's perspective and the editors were saying, and the editorial committee, oh, you know, we're talking about organizational effectiveness. What does that have to do with it? You know, that kind of thing. To me, it's also a sign that the women you're talking about, professional women, 20 years later, were um, more confident in their own development because of that finding of yours that they, yes. they saw as a co-priority for their time and effort to continually develop themselves, their voices, their insightfulness, their connections. Their, certainly, I have been amazed with the, the networking that I've seen in all different groups of women. That, yes. Frankly, I've been around for 50 years, starting when I was working with Peter as a student, and that was not even on the screen. This notion that women would take such organic connection with each other as seriously as they did, and then forming that into a very interesting learning system. Well, and one thing that was important to me, the reason I interviewed only women was I wanted to see the diversity of women, not only in race and gender, but in their differences of opinions. It's not like you could say, well, women this and men that in OD. So that was really clear. And um, I mean, that continued all the way through for they have no there's no there's a woman's voice, but it's has a lot of nuances and differences, you know, from extremes in how they view their work or HR, their uh, relationship with HR or what they think of that or their interest in global contributions. Uh, so I think that that's really important, that there's not just a men and a women. But I remember, you know, I was working with Peter and one of them said, well, you know, he got the award for the one of the 10 uh, best 
OD consultants, how come on that list there's no women? You know, so. And did what did Peter say? Do you remember? Yeah. <laughs> Peter would say, "Yeah, right," and I don't like it. I'm pretty right, sure exactly. he would. Yeah. Yes, exactly. He said, "You're right," and so. When would you? That was an interesting study you built, but at, is it at George Washington? But it wasn't yeah. typical, was it? I mean, I remember that's no. and you talked about it in in our last uh, recorded episode right. that you were kind of, um, you know, coming in as as a health practitioner, you know, not the typical. I've already done my MBA and all this other stuff, but there's a bit of a fight for you to get in and then to have this kind of very different kind of dissertation for OD. Yeah, and what I feel like I entered as a good girl. I wanted to follow the rules and whatever they wanted me to do for the dissertation, I would do it. But then I had this amazing experience interviewing these women who I didn't know, and they opened up to me. Like, why would all these amazing, successful women having their own private practice uh, talk to me? And they just opened up. And so the, that experience was real. It was energetic. It was sensitive. It was insightful. So then when I'm writing, I'm doing qualitative research and I'm following the rules on data reduction and data analysis, I wrote up the analysis and it was so dry and it didn't match the feeling of the women and what I experienced. And that made me a woman researcher. And I found my voice and I knew that I knew the rules, but you have, I, I could then break the rules, but I didn't do it in a way that was going to not give me my goal, which okay. to get a PhD, but I wanted to honor the women. They deserved it. And so what came to me, I meditated, I, uh, I, I kept saying, you know, please tell me, how do I capture the essence of these women and their stories? And this little voice said, yes, capture their essence. And I was like, well, how? And so it ended up, I used their narrative to create poem portraits. And then the way my brain worked, the data reduction, I made collages for each woman. So what happened was I wanted to capture each woman's individuality and I'd call them up and I'd read this one page poem I wrote about them. You know, the woman who swims with the sharks or, uh, you know, the Cheshire cat consultant. And then they'd go like, oh, my God, that's me. They'd start crying. They couldn't believe it. So doing that piece, I knew that they felt I knew them. So then when I went to the group analysis, like who are these women as a group, I didn't lose the individuality, but I incorporated it into something more integrative. And most of them liked the group poem the best because it made them feel connected to a community and to each other. So it was, it turned out unusual, but then also to be strategic, I put the poems and the images in the uh, appendix. I wasn't like asking GW to please, you know, take this on as a new form of research. Um, 
I, I did all the chapters just the way you're supposed to. And, you know, I, I did so well that they didn't, I didn't have to have a defense. They called it the colloquium. And I came in and I set up the art exhibit with all the poems and the images on the wall and then the integrative um, collage. And, and I came in and, and Peter said, sign right here, Dr. Kaplan. And so I signed the form and then he said, okay, do a presentation and lead us through your thought process and what you learned. And then we'll ask you questions. Dr. Kaplan, and it was like, like, he didn't put you in a position where you had to think that your presentation would then lead to a yes or no, right on the, on the whole endeavor. He was so thoughtful of you. And I think he wanted everyone to get into what you've achieved there. I think he wanted whoever was at that colloquium yes. Yes. to uh, get into the learning because it, it was so different. And we're talking 20 years ago, but it was different. And you were different. You were a different person by the end, yes. which means you went through an, a, yes. an incredible transformation. Uh, and the and funny thing is, so I had just gotten divorced from a 20-year marriage. And oh, I was living goodness. in this apartment building that Patrick was in and we met and we became fast friends. And so Patrick is um, a perfectionist in a different way than I am. <laughs> I, I have a high bar, but he does everything like it looks good. So I had made this huge four by four foot um, collage of all the women, you know, all their images. And then that told me the group home and who they were. And then I was able to write up, finish up the thing. And he came in to my apartment and he said, can I help you with this? I said, like, what? You know, cause I thought I had it done. No, no, we're going to fix the tape on this one. And, and this needs to move over here. And he just, he didn't interfere with the content or anything. He just made it look more perfect. And that's, how it was, I mean, we didn't really commit to each other for 15 more years. <laughs> we were just like, <laughs> but that's how he was. And he would be like in our house and I'd, or our apartment. And I'm a hoarder. I had to keep every book I ever read and all the files and everything. And he'd say like, we need to organize it and I'd be panicked he's going to change like my thought process and all he'd do is make it look nice and, and so anyway he was there he was a part of this dissertation even you know <laughs> in a wonderful way in a wonderful way so you um formed with him Yes. What I guess I could loosely call a learning organization because you each brought your own uh, skill, perspective, yes. and desire for an outcome that better than what any one of you could have done. And, and that yes. moved into eventually forming your, your consultancy and working in the healthcare sector, which even then was a really tough place to be uh, trying to help people change. And right. uh so it, it, it was a pro, it was providential on every level. Uh, for one thing, you weren't alone anymore, and losing you know breaking up in a marriage is a lot of alone, and so that's yes. a, that's an important piece. I, I want to jump to yes. the 
32 women who you then reconnected with. Was it difficult to find them in the world? Well, you know, what's interesting, you know, when I started in uh, the 1990s, early 1990s, you know, I had folders and files on each woman and where they lived and everything. But yeah. finally, thank goodness, when I moved to New York City to start working in OD, I, you know, I left all that because I was living again. I mean, New York is even smaller apartments for more money than Washington, D.C. was. So I got rid of all that. So here, 20 years later, I have this. Uh, I just have this desire to do a follow up study. I'm not associated at this point with any organization, no university. I just do it all on my own, sitting in my little space in the small apartment. And, and by this time, you could just go do a Google search. <laughs> so that's how I found everyone. Yeah. And there was only one woman I couldn't find. And it was very upsetting to me because she was one of the key first women that I interviewed. And, you know, they it takes one to know one, so they would recommend new people. But she was so important to me. And she literally gave me the shirt off her back. We were in her office, in her consulting firm in Chicago. It was freezing. <laughs> and she took off her purple uh like a sweatshirt top and gave it to me. So I was so eager. And I, I reached out to everybody who I thought knew her men, women, and OD and no one could find her, but that was it. And only two women had died and two women were very ill and couldn't yeah. participate. That was it. I, yeah. I mean, that's amazing. And to me, yeah. it speaks of that connection that I felt it was mutual right? That they were willing after 20 years. And this one I did on um, SurveyMonkey. Mm -hmm. And they all, part you know, wrote everything up. I mean, it, anyway, the point was, it was mutual. That feeling of connection and the contribution that by telling their story, I made to the second generation. So, you know, it's like you with the book with with Peter, there's something about that collaboration that even it just uh, it endures. What is remarkable uh, yeah. in your taking on that follow-up and me taking on the collaboration with Peter is that neither of us were doing it for any of the usual, you know, I'm a university professor. Oh, this will be a nice perk. It'll help my resume. You weren't doing because you, you know, just, you know, this will give my firm or our firm yes. a, a feather in our cap. You were moved to do that. And I was moved to do this work with Peter. It, and I think I've ended up and spending a lot more money out of pocket than I ever would imagine doing being a skintflint net Yankee, uh, but it was, but I was putting time and money and treasure into the, my feeling. And it still persists to this moment that what particularly we were onto in this nature of practice and particularly within that, the importance of the kind of learning that you've described, the independent 
choice to learn no matter what, because no one's going to tell me otherwise. That wonderful re revolt, if you will. Yes. The, uh, what Peter called the schooling, remember, in his book on learning, yes. learning as a way yes. of being. Uh, and and to me, it's been a lot more satisfying than if I were just doing this to fulfill, you know, put another line, another stripe on the resume. Uh, what? Why? Why did you feel you wanted to do it beyond? Well, I want to tell you, and I don't know if you're going to resonate with this because I don't know your history. But this morning, when I was thinking about, you know, this conversation, I was reminded of the quote by Kierkegaard that says. Life is lived forward, but understood in retrospect. And uh -huh. so there were two, if you asked me, well, I had a girl, a, a new girlfriend that I met years later in uh, New York. And she, in getting to know me, asked me one night over wine, you know, do you have any regrets? And she had like five marriages. So she thought I was going to do something personal like that. I said, well, I have two regrets. One was I never wrote a book on my research. So, you know, I wanted it. I wrote articles. I, I, I continued, but I that's a regret. I never wrote, that, wrote a book. And the second was that the way I left my last internal leadership position in a, in a hospital, I had uh, three major, uh, you know, engagements for eight years each. I was a vice president, chief learning officer, and my father had died. And he's a, he was a physician and it really affected me. And I showed it on my face and I don't know how much that contributed to them, they were the organization was doing a big layoff and they called me in one day and they said, we're not laying you off, but we're not able to continue with someone at your level in this new reorganization. And they respectfully gave me six weeks to leave, not like showing you the door. And, and, and yeah, here comes security, security to march, yeah, to march no, you out. No, it wasn't yeah. anything like that. So I had time to say goodbye and get everything in order and hand off all my projects. But I, I had great grief about that. I felt humiliated. It wasn't how I wanted to end my internal consulting career. But as the saying goes, you know, time goes on and you get perspective. And so that pain allowed me that, number one, my mother then got sick. She lived in California. I was in New York. So I had time to go and help her and be with her until she died. I would if I was working full time in New York City, believe me. <laughs> and I... I then thought about, well, what do I want to do next? And um, one of them was to join Patrick. He, he was always an external consultant. So I joined him and we did work then together. But the other thing was gnawing on me was about my study. Well, I wanted to know what happened to those women. And they were so worried when I first met them about like, what kind of old lady were they going to be? And were they, you know, and so, and here I was 20 years older, I was no spring chicken either. So I was really curious. 
And that's what prompted it. So I had space because I wasn't working full time or more than full time. And um, so you never know, right? That that kind of space and grief allowed something to be born, which was very important and something that only I could do. I'm the only one who knew that research project, the process that I developed and the women themselves. So that's how that happened. So I was wondering if you had any regrets in your life that were a catalyst to you doing some of the things that you've done that you're passionate about. Yeah, there was a, a moment similar to what you described. I was, um, when I finished my PhD and Peter said, signed it and said, uh, congratulations, Dr. Firon. I was just turned 30 and uh, I was uh, there at University of Connecticut and in a position where I could have applied for a faculty post there. And I'm pretty sure I would have gotten one. So along came news from home in Maine that my brother had a, a crisis and it was affecting the family. And uh, it started to make me think, well, maybe rather than committing and staying here in Connecticut indefinitely, I should explore going home to Maine. And uh, I found a job way up in the Western mountains in the university system that at least gave me some use of my doctoral qualification. But I remember Peter saying, you know, think about that, Dave, you know, you may disappear off the face of the earth wow. professionally if you take that job. And he said, I'm not telling you don't do it. Yes. Uh, you, but at least if you do it, be the best be because it's the first that I was creating something that didn't exist there before yes. he said, learn a hell of a lot from it and keep in touch. <laughs> and so, but here we go. I did it. And I raised a huge amount of money from the Kellogg foundation to promote wellness and health in Maine and all kinds of good stuff. But then oh. one day uh, the chancellor of the moment uh, sended, sent someone down as an acting president and said, well, Dave, um, you're done. You're, we're, we're going to use your division income and your budget to build an art gallery on campus. <laughs> and then you got two choices. You can stay here because we've also fired the public relations guy and you can write press copy for the campus and oh then you won't have God. to leave. Or we funded a two-year stint in Portland at the university in Portland in a new kind of program come human resource development and you know we'll fund you for two years and then you'll see what happens well i took the two years wow i commuted 105 miles one way to go to portland my home my family's home here's the part though to your story yes i was there three nights or at least two or three nights a week at my parents home while i was teaching and then i'd go home you know over the weekends so i got to be somewhere in my 40s, I guess, with my mother and father while they were still relatively healthy. I had lots of life times with them. I spent a lot of time with my dad. And then uh, all of his health problems caught up with him. And at 72, he passed away. So I had had two years wow. of regular yes. contact with him and my mother. And I helped her for the next 16 years. Uh, through through her uh, being uh, alone, 
and it was it was important. But I sure as heck didn't think it was at the beginning when when I was given the same kind of rude yes. awakening. I was actually and uh, burn up all of our time here, but I was actually on the telephone at my desk with the Kellogg Foundation, who was considering me for one of their uh, promising new president uh, career tracks. They were, you know, they were picking out people around the country who seemed to have some energy for change and, and making higher education more relevant to the needs of the community. And I was well aligned and the guy was saying, well, just write this up and write that up. And then the interim president walks through my door, didn't even knock, said, come down to the conference room. As I told the guy, I'd call him back. <laughs> well, I did call him back about three hours later and I said, take me off the list. Wow. You know, I, I, I was too far out on the, on the uh, plank, the gang plank. You yes. know? <laughs> and I got pushed into the water with the shark. So yeah, uh, all of that was transformative because I had to learn so much in the next, well, many years later, eventually getting back here to Connecticut. One main thing I learned, Catherine, is I was no good at being an administrator. I was called a dean. And I never knew how it was to take a knife in the back. <laughs> oh, God, yes. <laughs> so, so that was, I, I was, okay, I'll teach organizational development management, but I'm sure as heck going to shy away from doing it anymore. And Peter had the same experience. He, he, he learned tremendously being the dean at GW, but he went back to College of St. Thomas with that endowed chair with the expectation that he would be able to really just be what he's best at, which was yes. teaching and doing that evocative writing. Uh, I, I want to talk a little bit as, uh, because I am watching the time and I okay. people were really listening with, intently at two new friends uh, <laughs> who have Peter Vale in common. Uh, but uh, you now are in another phase of your life and you are still responsible for your personal development, Catherine. And what are the kinds of things that you're doing to keep that high energy learning that you've exhibited to me in both of these conversations? What, what keeps your, your learning wheels uh, churning? <laughs> well, I have to say uh, the stimulus is grief. I mean, I, I lost my partner of 30 years and um, I'm in the seven seven months of grief, and at the same, and so I have been transformed by this experience. And I, just like I honored the women, I want to honor Patrick in our his life and his death and our relationship. And so, don't you know, <laughs> the palliative care doctor who I had found, who was so helpful to us, uh, called me a half hour before a, a Zoom program was going to start. And she said, she's able to speak English. I'm in Mexico and everyone, yeah. I, everything's Spanish. But she said, you know, I think you'd be great in this program. It's, it's called Thanatology. It's the study of death. And you like how I treat you. Well, this is how I learned. So do you have time in the next half hour to, to try it? So 
I get on the Zoom, which I had never done, and the four hours are in Spanish, which I'm improving, but I'm by no means, you know, fluent the way a Spaniard, a uh, Mexican person speaks. So anyway, I listened to it and I was like almost crying. It was so, I'm so passionate about this theme of that we, you know, what death really is and how it differs and then loss and then grief. So, and then on the other hand, it was so challenging. Like, how am I going to do this? There were 24 women on the call, all women in this program. So anyway, I decide, I decide I'm signing up. So that's one thing. And it's a 13-month program. Every other week, four hours, I'm, I'm back to writing papers. And uh, like when they do the lecture, it's on slides. I Afterwards, I type it all up in Spanish. Then I send it to Google Translate to put it in English. And it's like, oh, so that's what they are talking about. Then when I write the papers, I have to write it in English. Then I have to translate it to Spanish. And then they wanted a certain length. I mean, it's not an academic program. It's a certificate program. (laughs) So they wanted two and a half pages for the front first part of the, the major theme of the book. And then two and a half pages of what it means to you. And you can't go over. So Spanish is much more wordy than English. So I'm looking at it in Spanish and I take out this word and this phrase till I get it the perfect length and then I send it in. So I'm very challenged by this. And I feel like just the way when I was in my first uh, work in OD, it was at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. I I just was so hungry for learning everything. I mean, from women's faculty to physician leadership, uh, the outpatient department, dealing with the union. I mean, I was just, I couldn't get enough. And that's how I feel now. I cannot read enough books on grief and loss and your soulmate. I'm just turned on by it in the same way. And then I'm also taking Spanish lessons to help with that. And I'm taking art lessons because I, Patrick, he was such a strong, energetic, vital person. And through cancer, he was at the end, a skeleton. And he, his body posture, he would be bent over and his skinny, narrow hands looking so mournful. Anyway, I as part of my healing, I want to be able to draw him, draw his hands and draw his face and draw his posture. And I don't have those skills. I'm very creative with collage, but not realistic drawing. So I'm taking art lessons so I can do that. And I will tell you, I am not good at anything I'm doing right now. I'm not good at learning language. I'm not good at uh, art, and yet I'm so motivated, and I feel I'm very like myself. I mean, this is how I am. <laughs> that I I won't quit. Um, I, I I'm just determined to keep at this because the big aha is death. I mean, we all know we're going to die, but mm-hmm. I just live through 
a whole experience that has, you know, changed everything. I'm, I'm on my own again, and I'm also legally blind. And we had moved to Mexico to have an adventure together before I was blind. And Patrick was always going to take care of me. You know, it didn't turn out that way. So I don't know how much time I have left. And I am passionately involved in my life right now. <laughs> oh, honey, I am so moved. I, uh, uh, I loved everything we said up to the, your response to my question, but just what you've described now and what you're going yes. through to um, achieve this new understanding, you know, big yes. U understanding of, of grief and death is uh, it, it basically confirms everything that I know and believe about learning for yourself, no matter what, no matter what the conditions. I mean, you had to learn a different in, in a different language. Uh, you you know, you've already iterated what what you've had to learn, and it was a key point for any listener. Yes, that you know, you said I'm not really good at any of these things, but I'm determined. Now that if if that would be the mission that Peter and I would have had with any of our students and anyone else who would listen to us, you're never going to feel expert enough. If you do, you're probably not. But go with that feeling that even though it's it's a struggle and it's a challenge and you're not not comparing to anyone in terms of who does it better, you just keep doing it because the, now what you're working on is everything about you, not just your skills everything about you, your character, your outlook, your compassion and empathy for others, uh, all of that you're working on. And uh, yay, I, I'm okay. I'm, I'll grade you right now. I'll give you a B plus. How's that? So that way you can keep striving for the A. <laughs> oh, I always like an A plus. When I go to I the know. dentist, I want them to say, is it an A plus? Is it all clean and nice but you know uh, something else that you're saying i mean yes i mean that's why i love peter so much he was always so human mm -hmm. and whole picture uh you know he was definitely into personal development i mean he was a outlier i think in terms of a lot of the men in the field you know and i didn't know you then but i'm sure you're that way too but i am <laughs> yeah that's right but, to this um, moment, I'm an outlier and I'm happy there. <laughs> uh, I know. Well, we, we connect on all these things. So, um, but in a, in a similar way, okay, the feel, the, this uh, program I'm in, you know, I hope it's my third career and that I do uh, what, what they say is you accompany people who are in grief or dying. You don't do therapy. You're not fixing them. They don't have to come to closure. There, nothing has to get resolved. You accompany them. So I find this book. I'm like, well, what is a company? You know, it, it that makes me feel, you know, it's humanistic, just like OD, but the roots of it. But it's, I feel helpless. That's a helpless feeling, just accompanying. And then here's this book where the, uh, expert in um, grief counseling, who also is a thanatologist, but in the States, compares um, accompanying to therapy. And he says, if you feel helpless, you're right where you need to be, because that's your role. There's nothing that you're going to do that's going to change anything. 
And I feel that's what you're about learning, you know, to feel inadequate, but determined. These are just counterintuitive, you know, feelings. And and that's what tells you you're on the right track. Like who knew? (laughs) Oh man. Oh, well, this, this is, can't be the last time that I, have a podcast conversation with you or any other kind of conversation because okay. we have we have an awful lot in common a, a lot in common at at the level of uh, of spirit as well as yes. uh, as any other level and so while i'm wrapping this up for the for the uh, podcast i i do want to say that where peter ended the conjecture 32 in the book that i've been uh, helping his his yes. legacy uh, reached the world. He devoted a lot of his uh, writing at that point, because it was the last thing that he got to write, uh, to the promise to all of us that if we do want to make ourselves better in the world, then we find something that, way, whether we call it a praxis or not, Thanatologist is a nice way of kind of shape, helping shape it. Do it, it because that's where you're going to grow the most. You're going to grow when you say, "I don't want to. I don't want to be undifferent, differentiated in any organization." But I knew, but I do feel that if I can be f- found out as a uh, what would he say, a superb learner. Uh, and, and never satisfied that there's enough learning done that day, which you've said in so many ways, Catherine, the, that's the person who's going to succeed in life right to the end. And that's who he was. And that's who yes. Patrick was right yeah. to his last days. As I met him just that for that brief moment before he went into hospice, I figured that he was cracking. You know, he said, let's do this again. I want to, I want to go into more depth. I really, sadly, I didn't follow up on that, but that's my point. My point yes. is that some of us, and maybe more of us in the world than we even know, like your 30 women. are 32 women. 32 women. And 32 journals that I did a research project on. It's funny, this 32. You and Peter has 32 yes. conjectures. So that's yeah. what I'm saying. <laughs> We're going to form, we'll form the 32 club. How's that? Okay. That's perfect. You, you can be you can be president. I'll be vice president. <laughs> <laughs> or we can co-president. <laughs> Catherine, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so uh, much. And uh, I look forward to our next conversation in whatever okay. form it is. It will happen for sure. All right. Thank you. Blessings. If you'd like to hear more, listen in on Spotify, Automatic. Apple Podcasts, or go to inactionresearch.com slash podcasts page. And if you'd like to learn more about social inaction and the nature of practice, head over to inactionresearch.com for more information. Thank you for supporting this show. We look forward to hearing from you soon.